There's a song that's stuck in my mind because it's sung in rather an intense manner in the movie The Sound of Music. You may be familiar with it. It says, climb every mountain and forge every stream. Are you guys familiar with this song? I don't know. Some of you may not know it, but love it or hate it, the fact is that it taps into a reality of the human life and the human experience, which is that there are mountains and that there are rivers that we face. There's difficulties, and it's not talking about literal things. It's talking about adversity and the struggles of life. Adversity and life seem to be inextricably tied, and what we mean by that is that you can't untangle one from the other. Life means adversity. Adversity means just that it's a part of the life and human experience. The challenges of life seem to come one after the other. There's always something more that we want. There's always something more that we need. There's something more that needs to be faced in life. In some ways, it kind of reminds me, for those of you who have had the experience of mountain climbing or hill climbing, where you have that experience of of getting up what you think is the mountain. And as you just start to crest what you think is the top, you come to discover, oh, this isn't the top. And, and rather, instead of the top, you're faced actually with another pitch of the mountain that actually is steeper than the one you just faced. In some ways, that's a picture of life. We're always cresting. There's always something more imposing in front of us. I don't think it's hard for us to agree on these realities this morning, these facts that being a human means facing these challenges one after another, and the fact that we simply do continue to have things that we need to overcome. Some of the things that we grapple with are relatively insignificant. You may think about the mountain of your laundry that's piled up at the moment, And it may seem like a challenge to get through that. Or maybe it's just the challenge of of getting meals figured out for the week, right? Or or the challenge of getting into work without being totally frazzed by the the traffic and, and just the process of trying to get into the office on time. These are challenges, certainly, but that's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about things at a higher level of significance, There are bigger and more significant things that we face. Things like relationships that are broken. Relationships that once were loving and supportive and good that have become fractured. It may be with a family member or a friend or somebody close or maybe even a significant other. And that relationship as it's fractured, now the, the, the possibility of it being right again just seems like this unassailable mountain in front of you. For others of us, it may be job or career that you're faced with the, the reality of going into a workplace that you loathe. Your job is a toxic environment or, or even just the expectations of what your company or your bosses are, are putting on you and the time that you have, they, you just don't know how those things are going to equal out. For others, it may be health. Maybe you've sat in that doctor's office with the news of saying, hey, there's, there's nothing more that we can do, or, or this is it, like th- this is what you're, you're going to face now. Maybe some of you have even had the experience of sitting in that doctor's office, having somebody tell you, I'm sorry, but you're not going to be able to have children. 
I pick on this reality because this is the reality that faced the hero of the faith that we're going to look at today. Infertility was her struggle. We're going to be looking at the life of Sarah. Sarah was a woman who desperately wanted to be a mom and yet was unable to be. What do we know about Sarah? Well, we know a couple of things about Sarah. We know that her life is recorded in the first book of the Bible in Genesis from chapters 11 through 23. We have bits and pieces of her story. We know that she was a beautiful woman uh, as she traveled uh, around with her husband. There were several times that kings were like, hey, who's this beautiful woman? There was, we also know that she was married to Abram or Abraham. He had two names and she had two names, which we'll talk about, Sarai and Sarah. For the most part, we'll re- refer to her as Sarah. But Abraham, her husband, was also her half-brother. And, and, and we've got to understand that culturally that was a relatively normal thing for the time. But the main thing that we have highlighted for us about Sarah is this fact that she was barren. That's the, the Bible term used to describe her infertility. And for those of you who have struggled with infertility or those of you who know somebody who's close to you has had that struggle, you'll know that it's incredibly distressing, personally distressing, to not be able to have a child when that's something that you really, really do want. But it wasn't just personally distressing for Sarah. We've got to see and understand that this actually was a culturally shameful thing. Like the fact that she couldn't provide an heir for her husband would have been a culturally shameful thing. So we're going to examine not just Sarah and not just this adversity that she faced. And some of you may be thinking, okay, great, this lady struggled with infertility. What's that got to do with the adversity that I face? Well, I'd like for us to look at her life and ask the question of how do we best face the challenges that come her way? Understanding that her struggle can help us know and understand how we face the struggles that, that, that come our way. So what I'm going to ask you to do is turn with me to Hebrews 11. Let's do that. Hebrews chapter 11. It's towards the end of your Bible. It's a rather big book for the New Testament. And this is the the book that we've been looking at and the chapter, Hebrews 11, that we've been looking at is we've been looking and asking the question through this series that we're in right now of how do we, by faith, step forward into all that God's called us to? And today, specifically, we're asking and looking at how do we walk forward with faith when we're confronted with adversity. So where Hebrews 11 takes us is really to this story of Sarah and the struggle that she's facing. So we'll be at Hebrews 11, verse 11. But before we read that, I just want to highlight a fact. A lot of us like to, uh, well, a lot of us, you know, we, we see and we understand that the Bible is this really good and helpful to, tool, but I have heard from people, both inside and outside the church, that this thought of, hey, is the Bible like, is it sexist? Like, is it a little bit like down on women? There, there can be that thought or that question amongst people. And I love the fact that Hebrews 11, when it's talking about all these people of faith that we can look up to, includes some incredible women like Sarah, like Rahab. And it kind of infers to some other ladies as well. And as you look through the Bible, what you'll discover is that over and over again, God celebrates both men and women. 
And against the culture that was very man-centered when the Bible was written, it holds up both men and women. And this echoes back to the fact that in Genesis, we're told that both man and woman were created in the image of God, that both have value and worth and dignity is what they deserve and respect is what they deserve. So just want to highlight that as we get into this Hebrews 11 passage is that women play just such an important role in life and in all that God has and plans. So with this in mind, let's read Hebrews 11 verse 11. This verse comes in the middle of talking about Abraham and his journey. And then it says in verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself, received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now as we read this, you may not be familiar with the story. You may be like, oh, so I guess she got pregnant and had a baby. Yes, she did. We'll get into some of the details of her life. But this was after a long struggle. In fact, you may have picked up in the verse there, it says that uh, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. Past the age, i.e. she was 90 years old when she became pregnant. And so what we see here in this text is this idea that by faith, Sarah received a wonderful miracle. The ability to supernaturally have a baby, even though she was too old to have a baby. And when I stand up here and say, by faith, Sarah received a miracle, and that's kind of what this verse is saying, I also say that with kind of a red flashing light beside that statement. The reason we need to have kind of a a danger zone warning here is because the danger is that we would think that faith is something that we produce that moves the hand of God as we would wish. If we continue down this line of thinking that faith is something that we need to get enough of so that we can kind of determine how God moves... What it would lead us to thinking is that if I can gather enough faith, God will have no choice but to answer my request. That's kind of the the end of that line of thinking. And that's not biblical. That's not helpful. In some ways, that's treating God a little bit like a video game. My my kids have, at Christmas, got the old vintage game of Mario Brothers. And so they've been playing that a lot. So it's on my mind. Uh, They've been playing it a lot. And in the game, you run around and you collect coins. And when you get enough of these coins, when you get a hundred of these coins, it cashes in for a one-up life. And I think sometimes we think of faith as like these mystical coins. We're going around, we're trying to collect enough of it. And when we have enough of it, we can kind of cash it in in a prayer request and say, okay, God, here's what I want you to do. But that's not helpful. That's not biblical. And it's not what the text is pointing to. The key to understanding Sarah's miraculous path through adversity is actually the second half of verse 11. Look at it with me again. It says, Even when she was past the age, i.e. really, really old, she, since she considered him faithful who had promised. The God of the Bible is a God who's not only real, But he speaks and he makes promises. And when Sarah heard the specific word that God had spoken to Abraham about her and about the future, she trusted that what God said was true and what he promised, that he was faithful to that. 
If you actually read this verse in one of the old, very literal translations, it's called the Young's Literal Translation, it says this, She did judge him faithful who did promise. I.e., God did promise and she did believe that what he, what he said was true. So what did God promise Sarah? Well, if we were to look back into the book of Genesis, which we will do in a moment, you would see that God had promised that she would be a mother. She had a specific promise that God was going to miraculously move. It was a specific revelation and a promise. And so you may be sitting there thinking about maybe the adversity that you face and you say, okay, does God still give specific promises to our situations and our struggles? And that's a sermon, I believe, for another day. But the short answer, my personal opinion, yes, he does. But maybe what is helpful for me to highlight at this moment is that there are promises that apply to all Christians that we can and should cling to as we face adversity. To these things as as we struggle, as we think about the reality that we face, there are promises to which we can hold. You're like, okay, that's, that's great, Holly. Like, what do you actually mean by that? In a practical sense, what do you mean? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. Maybe you're confronted with the man- mountain of anxiety over your work. When I talked about work a moment ago, you were like, oh, yeah, that's my situation. That's my struggle. You're just feeling anxious about all that's expected or just the situation and the tension at work. And it feels like this, this mountain in front of you. Well, there are promises, if you're a believer in Christ, that you can cling to to face that adversity. The one that comes to mind is Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, and it's a verse and a promise that we can claim. It says this, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so you're in that situation, anxious about your work. You can take that promise and say, God, please, I feel so anxious. I feel overwhelmed by my anxiety. God, would you help me, please? to believe that what you say in your word is true, that this promise is true for me, that if I pray, if I bring this thing, supplication to you time and time again, that you will hear me, that you will answer, and that you will bring a peace that passes understanding. I don't feel that right now, God, but I need it. Please help me. That's one example of clinging to a promise, facing adversity. Another example, maybe you're reeling from the loss of love. Maybe there's a significant other or, or a, a person that you dearly love that has, you have a fractured relationship with now, or maybe they've passed away, they've gone. And you just feel this emptiness as you think about that, that, that love that you have that is now gone. And as you think about that, it's just... Like, you don't know how to face it any longer. My encouragement would be to cling to the promise we find in Hebrews 13, verse 5, which actually quotes several Old Testament passages. And it says this, it's God speaking, I will never leave you or forsake you. God, I feel alone right now. This is what a prayer would sound like. But God, I need you to remind me that I am not alone, that you've promised that you will never leave me, you'll never forsake me. And so, God, I want to cling to that promise. 
This adversity, this loneliness is not something that I want to stand alone facing anymore. One more example. Maybe you're under the shadow of some bad news, bad health news. You've been told that this is the reality of your health and your future. Or maybe somebody you love has been told that news. What's a promise that you can cling to? Well, Psalm 23 is one. And in that moment, you may need to just claim verse 4 that says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so as you face that adversity, you say to God, God, I, I feel the shadow of death hanging over me. And I feel alone, and yet you tell me that you are with me and that you can and will comfort me. God, I need that right now. I could spend the rest of the time this morning going through promises of God. You see, God's Word is a treasure trove of promises. We could find them one after the other after the other, and they're there for us to find ways and means of connecting with God in the midst of adversity as we battle the difficult situations of life that not might come, but will come. That's what Sarah did. She, she had a promise from God and she clung to it. And we too can do the same thing. And, and so you may be like, okay, Sarah, she's such a gleaming example of what this looks like. Well, actually not really. What it's good for us to realize is that Sarah struggled. What may be helpful for us to do is to actually look back into Sarah's life because what we see in Hebrews 11 is the, the top of the mountain, the celebrating in the victory. If you're familiar with your story, you know that it actually isn't all rosy. We know that Sarah is this lady who goes on this crazy lifelong journey with her husband where they're going, like we talked about last week, where they don't know, into the unknown, right? They're going, Hebrews eleven eight. that was a little reference to Frozen 2, by the way, if you haven't seen it. They're going into the unknown and they're just following God, Hebrews eleven eight, not knowing where they're going. Crazy, right? And as they're living this life of faith, they figure out, hey, we're not able to have kids, And God comes as they land in the land of Canaan. God comes and promises offspring to Abram. And as Abram or Abraham, whatever way we want to refer to him, hears this promise and shares it with Sarah. We've got to understand in that moment, it would have felt exciting to them. Here they are in this new land and they're not able to have kids. They're starting to get older. And God says, you know what? I'm going to give you a multitude of generations after you. And that would have been like, oh, wow, okay, awesome. The God who's led us here is also now promising that we're going to have kids. But as the days turned into weeks, turned into months, turned into years, and there's no babies on the horizon, that word from God probably went from sounding exciting to feeling like salt in the wound. And that's the moment where I want you to pick up the story with me in Hebrews, not Hebrews, sorry, Genesis chapter 16. Let's turn there. Genesis 16. We're going to the other end of the Bible here. Genesis 16, verse 1 is where we'll read. So this is kind of the environment. 
in which we're picking up the story. There's been a long time since God has promised. And it says, Now Sarai, that's Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. When Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that you shall obtain children by her. Sorry, let me reread that. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, from her, Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Guys, this is drama. Ten years later on. Now, you've got to understand this. This is ten years from God coming to them as a couple that already have figured out they can't have kids and they're getting old. Ten years later, they're like, all right, nothing's happening. And so Sarah has this idea. She blames God, by the way, not in a healthy space. Look at verse 2. That's the part that we reread because what she basically is saying is like, God has prevented me from having children. And Sarah gives Hagar, her maidservant, to Abraham, and he bears offspring. Again, we may look at this and be like, what? That's crazy. No, culturally, this was relatively normal at the time. But what happens is she becomes pregnant. And what this does is actually highlight Sarah's problem. Because all of a sudden, okay, this isn't a problem that lies with Abraham. It actually lies with Sarah. Again, a deep hurt, a deep wounding happening to Sarah at this moment. And so in verse 5, she blames Abraham and, and she's burning with jealousy. It's just a, a complete mess in this moment. And I just got to highlight for us, this is a far cry from the hero of the faith that we read about in Hebrews 11.11. It's a complete mess. When we face adversity in our own strength, we only create more trouble. We absolutely learn that from Sarah. She tries to fix, she tries to control, and it ultimately backfires on her. Our attempts at self-help will ultimately always fall short. But there is good news here. Something changes in Sarah. Somewhere between Genesis 16 that we read and Hebrews 11 that we read, something radical changes. What happened between the mess and the victory? Well, the short answer is that nothing instantly happened. Because what we read on, if you read on through the story into chapter 17, what you realize is that another 13 years later, God revisits this, this whole area of struggle with Abraham. 13 years. 13 years after Ishmael is born. That's the son that Hagar has. God appears in Genesis 17 and walks and talks with Abraham. 
And in this moment, let me just summarize what happens in the initial part of the conversation. He comes to Abraham and identifies himself as El Shaddai. I, that means God Almighty. And he says, Abram, I want you to walk blamelessly before me. And I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. He talks about the special relationship, a covenant that they've already agreed to, to, and, and the symbolism of that covenant. And then finally, most importantly for our conversation today, he revisits the conversation about the next generation and the generations that will come, and how that's to come specifically through Sarah. So I want you to read that with me. It's verse 15 of chapter 17 of the book of Genesis. We'll just read verse 15 and 16. It says this, And God said to Abraham, so they're partway through this conversation, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall call her name, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. If you read on, what you discover is that Abraham kind of falls over in this moment in front of God. I don't know if it was an act of worship or just shock, but he laughs as well. It's maybe one of those awkward laughs because he's like, no, no way. I'm 99. I'm about to turn 100. Sarah's like 90. There's no way that this is happening. What's interesting for our, our thought and dialogue today is to note that God comes and what does he do? He renames Sarah. He takes her name from Sarai to Sarah. Now, if you look into that, he doesn't change the significance of her name. Both names mean princess, Sarai and Sarah. But what he does in changing her names is stake his, God's, importance in her life. Essentially, what he's saying is, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai, and I am the one who is over you and who defines you. And so what we see as we read here is that if we read Genesis 17, is that God changes Sarah's name. But if we read on to Hebrews 11, that God has changed Sarah's heart. She goes from being this frustrated, overwhelmed, defeated woman, struggling with infertility to this trusting, hopeful lady. And so what I want to assume together is that these changes of name and of heart are actually bundled together. God brings about the change to Sarah's name, but he also brings about the change to Sarah's heart. You see, God is the key to change in all of us. He, de- he redefines her and he reshapes her. And when God defines us, it changes us. And then, armed with his definition of who we are, we can walk confidently into whatever adversity we face. I guess what we're highlighting here is this. Sarah has a defining moment with God. If you look up that phrase, defining moment, in the Cambridge Dictionary, it says this. It's the point at which a situation is clearly seen to start to change. That's what a defining moment is. And the significance of God's defining And having a defining moment in Sarah's story actually isn't unique. In fact, every hero of the faith, every character in the Bible that we look into the lives of, we're going to see that they all have these defining moments. 
Think with me. Moses, in front of the burning bush, has a defining moment with God. Where God comes to him and says, hey, you're not a ruler of the people and you're not a shepherd now, but now you are the leader. You're ready. I'm sending you. Go. One of the funny ones to me is Gideon. Gideon's like hiding out in a corner and God comes to him and says, greetings, mighty warrior. And Gideon's response is like, who are you talking to? But God comes in that moment and redefines Gideon. We could go to David. David is just this lowest member in the family, this shepherd boy. And God comes with Samuel the prophet and anoints him and says, you are the king. Redefining moments. We could fast forward to the New Testament. When Jesus comes across Simon, uh, what does he do? He says, hey, you're no longer Simon, but your name's Peter. And, and that means rock. And I'm, man, you're going to be a rock in my church. Saul goes to being Paul in the New Testament. God over and over again has these defining moments with all of us. The point I'm making is this. We all need a defining moment with God. We all then need to live in light of who God says we are. It's not just about having the defining moment. It's then living under the umbrella of the definition that God creates for us. That we are His children. That we are loved and accepted by Him, and that He has a purpose for us. Now, I say all this realizing my own shortcomings. If we look at ourselves or any of the heroes of the faith, what we quickly come to see is that we all struggle to actually live in light of who God says that we are, even after defining moments. You see, there's only one person who has ever lived perfectly in light of who God said he was. You see, the most maybe important defining moment that we could turn our attention to is that beautiful moment when Jesus was baptized. Think about it with me. He goes to John the Baptist. He's baptized, and as he comes out of the water, what happens? A voice comes from heaven and says, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Even Jesus has a defining moment. And what Jesus then goes on to do is in light of who God says he is and what God has called him to do, he believes God and follows him towards the greatest mountain of adversity that any of us have faced. And I want to say that sensitively. I know across this room there are some very intense struggles that some of you are facing. There's adversity that is incredibly difficult. And yet what we see in Jesus is this mountain of not just, you know, the the things that we face, but rather the mountain of the sins of the entire world. And yet trusting God, he moves forward. To borrow from Hebrews 11.11, which talks about Sarah, we could say that Jesus promised, believed that who God, sorry, let me say that again. Jesus believes that God who promised was faithful and walks into that adversity. He goes to the cross. He dies for the sins of the world. He's raised to life again so that by this, you and I can have right standing with God. That he can forgive us now for the fact that we do struggle over and over again. Sarah, in many ways, like other heroes of the faith that we've studied and will study in the coming weeks, is a broken mirror reflecting faith for us. She's still a mirror, but it's, it's somewhat broken. 
So she reflects faith in certain ways for us, but we also see the brokenness of her life and her situation. Jesus is a perfect mirror, reflecting perfectly what faith is. And that is why, as we've said in this series already, we must keep our eyes ultimately on Jesus. Yes, we can look to say, yes, we can look to Noah or to Abraham or Moses or any of these heroes of the faith and glean things from them. But ultimately, our eyes have to be fixed on Jesus who is, as Hebrews 12.2 tells us, the author, the starter, and the perfecter, the, the, the working it out of our faith. So in light of all these things that we've said, let's ask a couple of questions to, in the hope that this wouldn't just stay as a theoretical conversation today. What adversity do you face? And maybe a good question to ask yourself is, what point are you on the journey with that adversity? For some, it may be a new thing that is looming in front of you. It's, the, it's that cresting of a hill and now you're looking at something new and you're like, oh, this is difficult. For others, you may be in the middle of, of just that, the throes of that adversity. And maybe as we looked at the story of Sarah and her struggle to try and control the situation, you're like, wow, that's close to home. That, that, that's me in the moment. I'm feeling tempted to try and sort this out myself. Maybe you're on the top of an adversity. You're kind of cresting the hill and you're saying, God's victory is good in this moment. That's great. But consider where you are today. And then secondly, I want you to think about this. Have you had a defining moment with God? Remember, we've said that walking through adversity is so much better knowing who we are in God. We see the difference in Sarah, the difference that it made. We've got to believe that it'll make a difference for us if we've had a defining moment with God. We said earlier that self-help doesn't help. What we're highlighting is that God-sized obstacles need God. And today is an opportunity for any of you who do not know if you've had a defining moment with God. Today is a moment, an opportunity for you to have the most defining experience in your life where you would say, God, I'm yours. I surrender. God, I want you to help me walk through life. I don't want to face another mountain by myself. And so if you want to make that decision to surrender to God, you don't need me per se to, to walk you through what that looks like. It's simply a prayer to say, God, I need you and I want to surrender completely to you. But if you do make that decision today, man, we want to celebrate that together as a whole church. I, we could go around the room today and ask people and, and, and those of us who are Christians in the room would say, this decision is the most defining thing in my life. One after the other, we would say that. And so if you're not sure where you stand with God, if you're not sure if you've had that moment, now is the moment. Seize this moment. If you've got questions about what that means, yes, come and talk to, to myself or to Martin, one of us, we'd love that. But if you make that decision today, and I'm praying that you would, I've been praying this week that somebody or some bodies would, come and tell us. We'll celebrate that together as a church. We'd love that opportunity. The final line of questioning is this. What does it look like for you to walk forward in faith, clinging to who God says you are, and clinging to His promises? 
This whole message today has been about the best way to face the challenges of life. And we've talked about the importance of a defining moment with God and the promises of God. It's really about these defining moments and promises and clinging to those promises by faith. So what that means is, for those of you who have had that defining moment with God, what has God said to you? Who are you in Him? What are the promises that apply to your situation? I gave a couple of examples, but like I said, this book is a treasure trove of those promises. So as, as you look at your unique struggles, what is God saying today? What does faith look like in this moment? What does it look like to walk forward in faith in this moment? I want to challenge you to not walk out of this room without asking Jesus to carry you by his promises through whatever adversity you may be facing. You see, the mountains of life are certain. But so is the fact that Jesus is, as the Bible describes him, the good shepherd. And he will lead us, and when necessary, he will, as the good shepherd, carry us through the adversities that we face. And so I really do want to encourage you to submit ultimately to him today. That's what this message is about. Not trying to face things on our own, but rather facing them with Jesus. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you don't call us to face the mountains of life alone, but rather as your word leads us to understand you are ready and willing to lead us through the valleys and the mountains of life. God, forgive us when, like Sarah, we try and face things by ourselves and we try to figure out how things are meant to work on our own. God, we're all guilty at times of doing that. Forgive us for that. And God, would you help us to walk into the things that we face today and this week and this year not trying to go solo, but rather armed with a definition of who we are in you and armed with your promises. God, thank you that you are a God who understands, a God who cares. Thank you that you faced adversity so that you know that when we face adversity, what that even feels like. Thank you that you're sympathetic to the struggles and the trials. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to trust you. And God, especially for those of us who are in the throes of a really challenging time right now, God, would you just carry us? Don't lead us, just carry us, God. We need your help. Thank you. Thank you, God. We trust you. Give us wisdom to know even how to respond in these next few moments as we think about all these things. Amen.